0: Hello, friends, and welcome. You are listening to Art Blog Radio, recorded right here in Philadelphia. My name is Natalie Sandstrom. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm thrilled to be here to kick off this new three-part Art Blog Radio mini-series on the topic of cultural accessibility. Today, we're going to kick off the series with an introduction to this topic um, and an introduction to a leading local organization that is just doing such great work for cultural access. Before diving in, I want to just start with a couple of housekeeping items. So for those who might not know me, again, my name is Natalie. I'm a contributing writer for ArtBlog um, and have been for about the past two years. And I'm also the program coordinator at the Institute of Contemporary Art at UPenn. I am a white woman with curly brown hair. Today I am wearing a Dark short sleeve blouse, and I am sitting in front of a white wall, and you can just see the bottom of a picture frame behind me. I'm recording from my home in West Philly on the traditional territory of the Lenape people, past, present, and future. And today, for this first conversation, I am joined by the amazing Katie Sampson. Katie is the Director of Education for ArtReach, which is a nonprofit organization devoted to increasing cultural participation among traditionally underrepresented audiences from both the disability and low income
1: sectors. Katie, welcome. Thank you so much. It's so awesome to be with you. Um, So yes, I am Katie Sampson. I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I am a white woman with blonde curly hair. I'm wearing long red earrings, purple headphones, uh, a gray shirt with a white Peter Pan collar. I am seated in a power wheelchair, which you can't really see in the zoom screen um, and behind me is a yellow mustard colored wall with uh framed pictures of family ancestors, maps, photos, um, ironwork <laughs> you name it, <laughs>
0: so it's, it's really been- great to be with you. You have a great background for talking about arts and
1: culture. You're ready I, for it. I do. I do. It's. Uh, I think it, I was. It was at one point Barnes Foundation inspired, and then it just kind of spun off from there.
0: Nice. I like it. I like it. So um, I think we can go ahead and and dive right in here. Um, and Katie, I know you have. Such an amazing background with so many different experiences. You've taught disability studies at Westchester University, been the assistant director of museum at PAFA, advised for organizations like the Impact Center and KSF, and now you're the director of education at, at ArtReach. So I'm wondering, maybe we can just start this conversation by talking a little bit about your current work. Um, what ArtReach is and, and maybe what ArtReach has been doing during the past year with COVID.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been a whirlwind, to say the least. Uh, I don't think, um, none of us expected that we would be in this situation for a year plus. Um, and I have to say there has been some ups and downs, um, especially you know, given the fact that we are a small nonprofit organization that is all about being out and about in the community and driving uh, really the narrative that people with disabilities deserve access to arts and culture. Um, and when COVID hit, it really reconciled with this, um, with our mission, our core mission. It was like all of the things we are supposed to do, we are not supposed to do. Um, and for a person like myself who has a physical disability and a sensory disability it um it was an interesting time for me personally because there is this aspect of being a a worker in the cultural arts and commuting into center city and the the time and effort it takes to be a fully functioning disabled person um, in that sphere with a full-time position and understanding that this new work-from-home environment really allowed a lot more flexibility in in my own personal work experience, which um, I really welcomed. Uh, But there were also just a lot of complications with even my own personal care attendant not being able to come and visit me because of the risks involved in travel during during the lockdown period. Um, my mother moved in with me also because of uh, just trying to further bring in as much community as possible. Um, I also have a roommate that's doing a PhD who's from Uganda who hasn't been able to travel home to her family for a year and a half. Um, so yeah, there's definitely been some hardships for sure. Um, and the work that we have been doing at ArtReach over the past 35 years, and I'm excited to say we are celebrating our 35th anniversary this year, so that is, yeah, very exciting, tremendous that, you know, ArtReach was founded prior to the ADA, and we're still doing the work, right? I think what I've been really enamored with, I should say, in the past year and being in this position is the way in which arts and cultural organizations have been forced to pivot into this virtual space Mm -hmm. and acknowledging that there is so much work to be done, especially when it comes to accessibility, both with the technological and the communication barriers that exist. this this conversation that we're having right now in Zoom, uh, through this little keyhole, you know, Natalie, we've talked about this thing that this this is not designed, you know, for people with disabilities. This platform, the mm-hmm. internet, uh, the web, and so how do you start having those conversations with folks that are just getting started on this engagement, virtual experience engagement, but also how can we do better? And how can we um, nudge, poke, prod, uh, (laughs) and get get our sector to engage? Because I think what we found is so tremendous is the engagement in some areas, especially when it comes to public programming, has really blown up. And... People are tuning in from Asia and Europe and Hawaii and places that maybe have never have known about Eastern State Penitentiary or you know um, the ICA or you know anything to that matter, which I think is is really remarkable. And i I think my hope is that it doesn't get lost in the transition back to the new normal
0: yeah I think that is so much great content to start us off with um, definitely bringing up a lot of really key points, including things like flexibility was a word that came up a few times um, virtual programs, which of course, you know I as the program coordinator at ICA have seen firsthand as part of an institution that has really adapted our programming over the last year and sort of thinking what it about what it means to be accessible to different people um, in a virtual space. You know, you you talked about sort of this geographic accessibility that comes with having Zoom programs, that as long as you have an internet connection, you can tune in from halfway around the world if you're willing to, you know, be up in the middle of the night if you want to watch something live. Um, But I think too, you know, there are these other components of what it means to be an accessible program that have the conversation has shifted in a in person versus a virtual space. And I think that brings up um, a lot of interesting questions about what those offerings look like from things like captioning or sign language or image description in a virtual space that might be. maybe a little bit weightier than thinking about things like physical accessibility. Because when you're on the computer, you know, you don't need to have um, a big aisle, for example, uh, in an auditorium type space. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about some of these offerings, um, some of the things that you've seen in these virtual spaces, Um, maybe even thinking about things like ArtReach's own cultural accessibility conference, which reached a much larger audience last year with the virtual the virtual platform.
1: Yeah, so with the work that we do with ArtReach on any given non-COVID year, right, we are trying to help arts and cultural organizations build audiences and create and expand accessible opportunities. So that is recognizing that there is a title three of the ADA and there are accessible services that are required under the law that need to be provided. And a lot of those requirements come with a burden that is put on a person with a disability to request those services. And what I found since I would say maybe the summer when we celebrated the 30th anniversary of the ADA, there has been a really interesting transition that has occurred with our sector in providing a more universal design to cultural programming in the aspect of yes, captioning will be provided, yes, a American Sign Language interpreter will be present in the Zoom screen at all times. Yes, each presenter will verbally describe not only their appearance, but any slides that they're showing, any video that is shared, any sort of visual content. So covering some of the basic elements of Title III from a universal design aspect, but also I've seen some really remarkable ways in which organizations like the Rock School of Dance, for example, in their Nutcracker 1776, were able to provide a PDF at home document that families could print out, cut out art activities, engage with the virtual content in their own time, but also it had ASL interpretation, it was audio described, an entire track of the show, and people had options. And that is pretty tremendous that an organization is taking steps not only to be inclusive in and intentional, but also thinking about kind of the multi-sensory apo- approach to learning. And some of these aspects that I think we don't often focus on, which can involve People with people who are neurodiverse, or people with intellectual or cognitive disabilities that may require a little extra time, may require simple language, simple instruction, or also requires some movement, some engagement that is not just about watching and learning, but is activating um, activating your own kinesthetic learning experience your own body in in the process and i think what has been so interesting to see is folks that are leading by example so someone will maybe take part in in something or or watch a webinar and say hey you know i saw this happening over there maybe we should do it too and There has been such an incredible outpouring of support from uh, accessible consortiums all across the country like Chicago, Seattle, um, uh, Mac in New York, as well Mm -hmm. as the Kennedy Center lead organization providing free online opportunities for people to really learn. And when we launched the cultural accessibility conference virtually, we were kind of one of the first ones to say like, hey, we're going to do it. And we're going to hope that people need it and learn about it and engage. And yeah, we, we expanded from 75 in our first year to 238. And wow. we had, I think eight countries represented and 34 different states. And it was, it was, freaking awesome right? it was it was
0: such a great program and I also think about how relatively early in the pandemic that all came together because that conference took place in the end mid-September or something right. like that and so if you think about the turnaround time of of organizing something like that um it was such an impressive Experience and and the content was so timely and you know I think you you just spoke about these organizations that have put together um, at home materials or videos that include maybe educators that pause and give an opportunity for someone to respond or to get up and move or to do an art activity um, or another non art activity at home and I think that even at the conference, there were these opportunities that you had um, the live sessions, but then you also had sort of these like TED Talk style pre-recorded sessions. And so if if you're thinking about sort of this lead by example model, ArtReach is such a perfect uh, candidate to to be an organization that people should follow if they're interested in getting some of these tips and tricks. Um, I also just want to go back to something we've thrown out a lot, which is ADA. So for people that might not be familiar, ADA stands for the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed in 1990. Um, So Katie, earlier you said we last year celebrated the 30th anniversary of the ADA and that outreach has been around now for 35 years. So predating the ADA. Um, And a lot of what the ADA focuses on is sort of providing these quote, unquote, reasonable accommodations, uh, oftentimes architecturally, but also in communication. Um, And so episode two of this podcast series is really going to look at policy more deeply. But I think it's, it's interesting as well, just to point out that so much of this, um, these historical documents or experiences continue to evolve as we have different tools available to us like Zoom or like, you know, virtual virtual programs, virtual guides, social stories, pre-visit narratives. There's just a plethora of tools that have become available in sort of unexpected ways, I think, during the
1: pandemic. Yeah, I think um, there's there's an expression that goes back probably a few generations before us that's um, something about um, when you know better you do better um, and something about this idea that I'd say within the first eight weeks of lockdown everybody was oh I'm gonna take this webinar and I'm gonna jump on this because <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing right and yeah if we can't if we can't do anything we can all learn and it was uh it was a really important time for us to, I think, lean into this idea of professional development and learning and how effective it can be during this time, especially with the uh, just unbelievable um, social justice movement that has taken over with um Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate, Indigenous People and the recognition of, uh, you know, land acknowledgement, but also reconstructing the narrative around colonialization. And accessibility inclusion is all a part of that. And to not understand intersectionality at a point like this is uh, is challenging when I have unfortunately had to justify why it's important that staff still needs to be trained in understanding disability and, and etiquette and the law, because we, if anything that we've learned in this time is that from designing exhibitions to providing a theatrical experience to opening up a public garden exhibit that if you're not thinking about inclusivity from the beginning, then you're leaving people out of the conversation and you're leaving people out at the seat of the table. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that aspect of learning and engagement is something that I've really tried to push a lot more in this time because now is the time we're in a we're in a rebuilding stance we are in a process of learning and engagement of knowing better to do better and we have to go beyond ADA because there's so many aspects of ADA that come in at the end as, as an afterthought and no one should feel like they're an afterthought, whether they're a child or an older adult, um, you know, someone with dementia and their caregiver, or perhaps uh, a teenager that has like severe anxiety and has been isolated for quite some time. So when we talk about this understanding of disability, I think we also have to open ourselves up to the fact that you know we're we've all been there at some part of this, um whether it's temporary, whether it's invisible, whether it's visible, um, we've all shared a little bit of that empathy of knowing what that isolation feels like, and to try to put that forward in the work that you do um, at this time, I think is is galvanizing.
0: Mm. Galvanizing is such a great word. I think that really points to a lot of the unexpected community building that has taken place during this time. I think of resources, again, such as Reach and the CAFE series that you put on, which are some ongoing um, trainings or panels. I'm not sure quite if trainings is the right word. Workshops that are wonderful learning opportunities. Um, and I think that Moments like that, or programs like that, are a great way for the community, um, particularly the the Philadelphia community, which is often so well represented at those programs, to have these conversations that can sometimes happen just inside institutions or um, among individuals. And so, taking these to a larger public, even through opportunities like this conversation today, is really so important in building resources and creating new resources and reaching new communities. And so I guess with that, I'm sort of wondering if maybe we could talk a little bit more about some of these resources and opportunities, um, not only for institutions to kind of better this work, but also maybe just individuals who might be listening to this conversation or people who would be interested in learning more who are at different stages in their own um, accessibility journey.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the starting blocks I, I always tell people is, is try to learn the history of the disability rights movement first and foremost, right? We we don't get a lot of it in school. We don't Hardly get a lot any. of it. Right. We, we yeah. don't get a lot. Um, we're not, necessarily tested on it we don't have to write essays on it unless it's sort of uh, self-directed um, and I think what's been so interesting and I found in some of the research that I've been doing is interest-based learning now more than ever is is what people are very much engaged with especially young people um, and younger generations like um, you know generation Z and and Millennials they get it because they've been dealing with inclusion for most of their lives because Mm -hmm. of the ADA, because of the IDEA, because of some of these laws that directly impacted their understanding of uh, being welcoming and inclusive in the classroom. Um, And so I think learning that history from the disability rights movement, crip camp, the film that was put out on Netflix this past year, that was produced by Michelle and Barack Obama, uh, is a tremendous film, and it's something that I think everyone should see. Um, yes. And it it tells a story from a framework that uh, recognizes that disabled bodies have a story to tell, right? And and that story is everybody's story it's a collective story and so I think I think the sort of starting out point of learning the history but also from a perspective of um, like knowing and understanding you know one in four people in America has a disability and Philadelphia here in Philadelphia is the highest rate of disability in the top 10 metro cities in America
0: and 16 percent here
1: in Philadelphia that's right. And we could see that change in the upcoming release of the 2020 census, which, but well, I don't know, any day now we're supposed to be getting that data. Who knows um, how exactly accurate it's going to be. But right. I, th- um, I think understanding just that demographic alone, but also I think it's really important that lived experience has to has to take its place in People's understanding and learning, whether it's uh, a parent, a sibling, a relative, a neighbor, a community member, and that uh, we often talk about this idea of saying something like disabled forces like able bodied and I think uh, Judith Heumann, who's a disability rights activist, she also says this, and and I really appreciate it, by using a term like non-disabled rather than saying able-bodied or quote-unquote normal, because the the demographics are actually highly in the favor of someone acquiring a disability at some point in their life, whether it's temporary um, or permanent, Whether it's visible or invisible. And so understanding that lived experience and building that empathy is an important aspect of the learning process. Um, But also just the sense that um, it shouldn't fall on one person at one organization. It shouldn't be the program coordinator. It shouldn't be the education manager. It shouldn't be the guest services um, supervisor. Mm -hmm. Disability. And accessibility impacts all parts of an organization. And if you don't think that, then you need to think about why you don't think that. And you need to address the where's and the whys and the hows and the who's of what's make you say what's making you say that and what type of learning needs to be done to expand your, your capacity. For, for growth and learning. Because there are people out there with disabilities who have money to spend. They have an income. They may have a discretionary income, but they have an income. There are, so that's your donors, right? That's your development aspect. There are people out there that are trying to engage, but may not be able to reach you because your website is not accessible. And mm. you have zero image descriptions that are backing up your cool and hip and awesome gallery exhibition that you've just decided to put up on your website. So I would question, you know, those that are not necessarily thinking along the terms of access and wanting to know where to start, questioning these ideas of was this made with me in mind? Was this made with Aunt Agnes in mind? Was this made for my neighbor Joaquim down the street? What are we leaving out? Who are we leaving out? And when when are we questioning that aspect Mm -hmm. to it?
0: I think that's such a great prompt um, and such a great way to sort of really turn on empathy for people and to to really have sort of this imagination exercise that goes into this questioning process. Um, Some of your points about disability history from mentioning Judith Heumann, who was heavily featured in in Crip Camp, um, to these other aspects, as well as these points about empathy, really remind me of one of the the key phrases of the disability rights movement or, or mottos or slogans, whatever we want to call it nothing about us without us. So you and I have talked about this before as well, about thinking about what, when you are maybe an institution building a a program or really trying to reach um, the disability community or whatever, how are you making this effort sustainable? How are you making it meaningful? How are you doing this work without tokenizing anyone? And I think that going back to these essential points about intersectionality again particularly within the Philadelphia community this can apply to any group of people right how are we getting input and feedback from the communities we're trying to reach in a meaningful welcoming way and i think that covid and being virtual and you know everyone working from home has definitely given people sort of a forced perspective on the importance of all of these various realms of accessibility, um, thinking about you know what is the process to, to move about the world in the way you need to or execute the work in the way that it has to get done, um, that just really opens up a whole slate of conversation um, that I, I hope, I echo what you said, that I hope this is definitely going to be something that all of this momentum will just continue to snowball more and more and more.
1: Yeah. And I think there also is this aspect of, um, you know, not necessarily being about cultural competency, but being about cultural humility Mm. and sort of understanding that the work is intentional. Um, it is kind of, it's honoring beliefs and customs and values, but it's also recognizing a power imbalance. And the fact that that power imbalance exists and needs to be in some ways dismantled, in many ways dismantled. And also just understanding that you can make mistakes and you will make mistakes and you need to go forward with those mistakes, acknowledge them and move on, right? I mean, I, in in my own journey as an advocate and a person with a disability, I sort of didn't come at this immediately right and and i acquired my disability when i was 20 years old and i've only lived half my life as as a as a disabled woman and i think understanding that some of this advocacy didn't come immediately to me and it it also didn't come with great comfort and ease when i was first working in this field i just sort of felt like you know oh ask the girl in the wheelchair that works here what should we do about this like physical accessibility situation um as you were saying that sort of tokenization um I didn't welcome it at first and I um I almost kind of hid behind the historiosity of museum culture right Mm -hmm. and the objects are just as valuable as humans, um, if not more so, right? And all of these things that I'm now, I, I go back and think to myself like, okay, I, I definitely made some mistakes, but but needing to sort of acknowledge it. And and some of that really happened even just this past year with our, our cultural accessibility conference and recognizing that, you know, a person from India who is just starting out on their uh advocacy and access journey that's doing this work may not have the means to pay a full 100% cost that it takes someone who's working in in the same sector that's located in Chicago and and acknowledging that we've made some mistakes there and some scholarship funds were not made available for those overseas and and things like that so i think it is the 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 work that is being done to acknowledge that we've we've really moved beyond this sense of uh, of of competency um, and to also kind of embrace as you were saying this idea of building a community. It's not just about building audiences is you're building a community that will not only come but sort of pay you back tenfold and yeah. I was just talking about this today with John Orr, our executive director at ArtReach. And people tend to overuse the the phrase that comes from the film, uh, The Field of Dreams. Like, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> and I, I was sort of thinking, like, we need to say something more like, if we build it, we will come. Mm-hmm. So if you invite us in, if we are part of the build, we will show up and we will take notice, and we will tell our friends, right? And there is a, a great comfort in the disability community when things are intentionally done for them. And I think uh, Alice Wong says this in her book, uh, Disability Visibility, and it just, it really speaks to this uh, notion of feeling included uh, that is just so, is so important and so valuable. And it, it makes everybody just feel better and that's that's what we need right now
0: yeah i love that i think that's such a great turn of phrase and i think that sentiment if we build it we will come is sort of a perfect wrap up for this episode i can't believe we've already been talking for more than half an hour um i think we've just sort of scratched the surface on how much there is to talk about and to unpack um and so I hope that our listeners and our viewers are inspired to come back for episodes two and three, which will continue this conversation with some new some new individuals um, expanding upon what we've touched on today, as well as people who will look into some of the great resources and individuals and films and books that have come up today as well so katie i just want to thank you again so so much for your time for your insights for all of the personal and professional anecdotes you've shared today thank you
1: you're so welcome this was really great and uh people can definitely reach out uh to art reach where we are at www.art slash reach.org um I am k-s-a-m-s-o-n at art-reach.org and we welcome people to our upcoming conference in mid-September to really engage and become access allies um, in the in the sector and really and really build um we want to make Philadelphia the most accessible city in America for arts and culture and uh and those who are listening to this podcast and a part of the Philly Art Blog can really help us get there.
0: Definitely, definitely. Well, thank you again. This has been Natalie Sandstrom for Art Blog Radio. Thank you for joining me and everyone make sure to tune back in next month for episode two on disability history and policy. Thank you so much.